HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Nathan Kendall. We'll talk to Nathan about N. Kendall, Hickory Hollow, Shapika, the Finger Lakes, and more. We'll taste a Kendall and a Shapika for our weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Nathan Kendall, a Finger Lakes native, has been making wine at his eponymous Nathan K. Winery for over a dozen years. He has traveled the world to fine-tune his craft, including Sonoma, New Zealand, Australia, Oregon, and the Mosul in Germany. He also makes wine at Hickory Hollow and at Chapico with Pascaline Le Peltier. Nathan is part of a new generation of Finger Lakes winemakers, bringing passion, innovation, and technical skills to their wines and the region. Welcome to the Grape Nation, Nathan. Thanks for having me. All right. So, Nathan, before we get things rolling, um, obviously the people that know you know you. There are a lot of my listeners that know you, drink your wines, and there's a lot that don't. So just help me give a little context to my listeners. Do it quickly, but give me a quick background on your journey in life and wine that got you to your own uh, wineries. Like I said, you know, you're a Finger Lakes native. You know, get me to the wine point forward, all right? Yeah. I mean, that started pretty early on in life. Um, when I was young, my mother worked in a fairly renowned local tasting room called Herman Weimer. And um, uh, the most renowned. Yeah. And I was always kind of intrigued by the process. I knew Herman when I was a young boy. And um the older I got, I was pretty intrigued how the you know farming could ultimately turn into such a delicious beverage. Um so from there I started working at a tasting room at 18 and I did that um, through college. And then after college, I 
really wanted to learn more. So I just packed up my bags and went and started working harvests and um, realized that I could go to the northern and southern hemispheres, do two to three harvests a year, and ultimately evade winter. So that was a pretty, pretty sweet journey. Um, that was smart. 2011, I got back here and I had a job opportunity. I was preparing to go back to the Mosul, but I got a job offer I didn't want to turn down and um, ended up sticking around. And it was another fairly established winery. So all the cool little tricks I learned from other regions, I couldn't really use them because there was a house style. So I just started right. making small batches, you know, a barrel here, a barrel there. And then uh, every year just continued to make more and more until I couldn't balance uh, the two jobs. So, Nathan, just tell me a couple things before we move forward. Um, did you go to school locally um, or did you leave the area? And when you said you came back and worked at a winery, where did you come back from? So I attended a business school, a local business school up towards Buffalo, and okay. um, I started the traveling after that. I did take the uh, part-time courses for uh, the, the wine degree here in the Finger Lakes, but I ultimately dropped out of that because I couldn't balance that with a full-time job of uh, winemaking. Okay. Right. And where where were you last when you came back? You know, like you said, you were traveling, traveling hemispherically. So your last stop before you settled in the Finger Lakes was where? It was in the Mosul in Germany. Oh, it was in the Mosul. Okay. Yep. Um, all right. So that brings us up to about 2011, yep. you said, when you kind of realize you got to get on your own and do your own thing. All right. So we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, you're definitely part of a generation of young winemakers in the Finger Lakes. I mean, it's happening everywhere. It's happening in the Mosul. It's happening in Napa. It's very cool. You know, as you stood on the shoulders of the pioneers, you know, producing wines in that area. I mean, you worked at Weimar, you know, as a teenager. Oh, I didn't um, work at Weimar. My mother did. Your mother did, but you were around Weimar, I meant, you know, which yeah. was a big deal and knowing Herman and all that, which was pretty cool. Um, do you think, this is a general question, do you think the Finger Lakes region is finally getting the attention it deserves? Are we there yet or still a little ways to go? Um, I think we still have a ways to go, although we are enjoying some uh, more press now than we ever have. Right. So what is it a matter of? Just continue to make good wines, get them out there, get the right people, you know, drinking them. How do you, how, do, how does that build up? Ah, geez. I mean, for me personally, it's taking what I did last year and really putting it under a microscope and just saying like, how can I do this better? Right. Um, and I think, you know, as a region, we all kind of have to push ourselves to be better than we were last year um, and just continue to do that consistently until, you know, more people take notice. Well, the, here's the irony. I mean, you hit it on the nose. You're talking about, you know, making great wines, looking in the past, trying to make things better. But there's always that marketing and selling, you know, which gets it even further on the map. And, you know, as a small winemaker, 
you know, you, you have to concentrate your efforts on making the wine and, you know, hope that things will happen and they will. Have you seen any kind of cultural shift in the region? Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I think the, the younger generations coming up and even the older people, we're all starting to think, you know, how can we do this in a more sustainable manner? So you're seeing a shift to kind of more holistic farming. And with that said, people are starting to experiment more with grape varieties that um, require less inputs in the vineyard, you know, whether it be right. uh, old Nebraska varieties or old hybrids or even um, new hybrid varieties. Right. So that's a pretty common thing. I mean, when you talk about a cultural shift and you're talking about sustainability, that's like a home run. I mean, that's what everyone should be doing, right? Yes. Yeah, I mean, we, we only have one planet, you know. Right, but not everyone approaches it that way. You know, it's it's nice, you know, for you to say that. Um, is it a, is there a community sense? Is there sharing? Everyone shares the same vision, shares info. I mean, do you feel that? Um, I mean, that's yes and no. I know that there are some like groups that get together or some wineries that get together and discuss and share ideas on, you know, better farming and whatnot. Um, I, I would say for the most part, we, we do kind of collaborate on that process, but there's right. obviously people who just kind of keep their eyes on the prize and keep moving forward, you know, without much communication with other wineries. Right. Which is, which is fine too. Um, so most of the fruit that you vinify is from Seneca Lake. Um, and, and I think it's fair to say Riesling has always been top of mind in the Finger Lakes. I mean, it's definitely lead dog. Um, and then along with Chard and Pinot Noir, um, you alluded to it, you know, a minute ago, and I want to talk about it a little more. Tell me about these other grapes that are now becoming important to the region. Um, and you, you know, certainly you exhibit that in, in Shapika. I mean, can you discuss some of these hybrids and are they cultivars? You know, you mentioned them. Let's talk specifically because you're vinting some of these. And, what you know, why? I mean, I mean, it's uh, the wines that um, I work with, the, the old hybrids. That was when we started that we didn't know if that was even going to work because these are wines that most recently have been used for, you know, sweet table wines, you know, entry level stuff. Right. And we right. didn't know, there was no examples on the market of what a bone dry sparkling Catawba even tasted like. And is the stuff that people, what they were drinking 150 years ago, would people actually want to drink that now? Right. So in the trials that we did, we found, Hey, you know, these, these hold up and they're, maybe even more relevant now than they were back then. So do the trials literally involve a vintage or two, you know, to, to get it, you know, in the tanks and vinify it in a dry way and see if it worked? I mean, is, is that what you've been going through? Well, I mean, the first trial I did with the Catawba was, you know, taking um, a mediocre bulk wine I got from another winery Okay. And stripping the sulfites out of it to get to a level that I could ferment it a second time in bottle. And the flavors were there, but 
it could have been a better wine if the fruit was better and if the winemaking had been a little better. But right. it showed enough promise to to up the ante and do a couple tons the following year. And that was the first commercial vintage, and we put it out there, and people really seemed to enjoy it. Right. So obviously, if that totally crapped out, you would have been discouraged and maybe moved away from it. Uh, you said something I'm just curious about. Curious about how do you how do you strip the uh, sulfur or sulfites away? Um. So it was uh, something I never want to relive. Uh, oh boy! Well, it's a very, an old wound. <laughs> it's a tough process to do it, um, and it terrifies a lot of winemakers because right. it involves using peroxide, which oh can absolutely oxidize a wine if it isn't done correctly. Right. So it was careful racking, some exposure to air, a little bit of peroxide, um, just because you know you can't have a secondary fermentation. Uh, with the presence of sulfites or it would be a really unhealthy fermentation. Right. So that first time was bulk juice that you got from somewhere. And there was some encouragement after, you know, some efforts with the peroxide and the desulfiding or whatever. Um, what happens the second time you look at a better source, you do it from the grapes or you do it from juice again, nope. you know, uh, how, how does it play out in a good way? So what happened was I have a high school friend who is actually a great broker. So he knows basically ah. every farm around here. And he got me hooked up with a pretty incredible family uh, that had been certified organic since the early 90s. And they just wow. grow gorgeous, pristine fruit. So obviously, you know, good wine starts with good grapes. So we were able to link up with them, get some grapes make them the way we wanted to make them. Um, yeah, and we just, we did it right from the start. So the results, obviously, with great fruit became what you want, where you wanted to go, or you went to where you wanted to go, right? Yeah. With the Catawba. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a couple of other grapes that I, you know, read about and even have tasted up there. There's Delaware and there's, you make a Nouveau Concord which sounds like the old Concord grape or something. Um, are those grapes less prominent, but you still have an interest towards them? Well, uh, Concord is all over. I mean, you probably throw a rock in any direction, hit a Concord vineyard. Um, Up there, right? It's very widely planted in all of New York State. Right. Uh, especially when you get out towards Lake Erie, uh, very prominent. Um, Delaware, on the other hand, uh, that's kind of a sad sad story there because I find it to be one of the most delicious of these old school varieties, but it's not widely planted. Uh, most of it got ripped out, uh, replanted other, other kinds of grapes. So you don't really see much of that. Right. But there's still a little, I mean, do you get your hands on some? Yep. Yep. Yeah. I get so, a couple tons every year. So, you mentioned Concord. I mean, you know, I grew up around here and Concord grape, Passover wines or Concord grape, you know, all that crap. Um, what's Nouveau Concord? It's just venting Concord in, you know, a new style or is it a different grape? No, it, it's Concord grapes. It's everything you would expect okay. from Concord. Uh, with that one, though, it's um, so it's like a 
semi-carbonic, you know, whole cluster fermentation. And then it's pressed right. off uh, after a couple of weeks and bottled up without sulfites and just put it on the market as soon as we can. So it's a very fresh. It's like, almost like that Nouveau Beaujolais play, right? In a way. Yep. yep. Where they just, you know, put it in the bottle and get it out. Now, I asked you this early on and just quickly, um, Catawba, Delaware, Nouveau Concord, anything else you could think of? Are those hybrids and what are cultivars? They're very old hybrids, like going back to the early 1800s. Right. So um, somebody in the 1800s took two different grape stocks or something like that? Mm-hmm. And and put them together. What's a cultivar? Is that the same? Uh, the cultivar. Like, what what do you mean? I don't know. What is a cultivar? I'm asking you. You're the wine. Is there such thing as a cultivar? I mean, I believe that would be the species of grapes, right? Okay. Yeah, I think so. So the the cultivar and the hybrid. Yep, that would answer that. Um, are there any other grapes that are there that, you know, are worth looking at or that pretty much is it? I mean, there's a lot of really interesting grapes. And I mean, maybe some of them haven't exactly found their voice. Uh, I know um, a hybrid developed back in the 70s uh, known as Cayuga White that uh, that can make some downright delicious wines as well. Is that of interest to you? Is that important? Like down the road when you have time, it's something you'd like to work with or there's just not enough of it or your hands are full? I mean, what's your perspective towards that? Um, I actually play with a little bit of it now. Okay. I like hearing that. I mean, I hope you'd say that. Yeah. As long as it's there and you can get your hands on it, even if you make a barrel or two, you know, it'd certainly be fun. Well, it, um, it lends itself quite well to sparkling wines. So what I've been doing with that ah. is I, um, bl I blend it with Riesling and uh, I make a sparkling wine. Nice. Nice. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. You know, we're going to get into your wines. Um, it's hard for me on the show not to talk about, you know, climate change. It's a very broad topic. And, you know, you and I could probably do a show on it just as a topic alone. But the short question is, you know, it's certainly a reality in all of wine now. What impact does it have on you and your wines? Is it early planting, later picking, vice versa? Um, has it had an impact where you've had to do some pivoting? Um, I mean, for many reasons, I, I shift more towards sparkling as much as I can every year. And that okay. is kind of, you know, my, my response to the climate change, because with the sparkling wines, you don't have to hang them out for ripeness. You actually want to bring them in earlier with lower sugar and higher acid. So right. that helps avert some crises in more challenging years. Um, right. So, so does that mean in a typical year, as we move forward, the percentages of the sparklers will go up little by little because of that? I personally wouldn't be shocked if that were the case, just because okay, it could I'm happen, not, and you you may you may be pushed to that. Well, I mean, I'm not the only one noticing it. I can't be. No, no, no. I know. <laughs> yeah, That's no. I asked how it impacts you. Yeah, yeah. You know what you have to do. Uh, for um, me personally, yeah, I'll be increasing the, uh, sparkling wine, but I wouldn't be shocked if you know you see more people jump on board.
as well. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole sparkling wine industry in England now because, you know, they can grow stuff there. It's the craziest thing. Um, on your wines, not so much the sparklers, but on your wines, um, the Rieslings, the Shards, the Pinots, I mean, are you drawing influences from Burgundy and from the Moselle? Um, or or do other regions, you know, out, are there other regions out there you pay attention to? Um, or basically it's place the terroir, your grapes. I mean, how do you approach that? Are you influenced by other things? I've always like for the Rieslings, I've always been a fan of German Rieslings, like ever since I started drinking wine. Um, and I do a couple bottlings of Riesling, one with a green label, and that's kind of inspired by a cabinet. Uh, a trocken. Right. So it's a, a bone right. dry wine, but it's picked a little bit earlier. So the alcohol is a little bit lower. Um, and then I do every now and again, I've only done it twice now. I do a black label Riesling, dry Riesling, and that's more inspired by like a, a GG style. So it's bigger, it's riper. Um, it's, yeah. So I, I'm definitely inspired from other regions. That's kind of where the Rieslings end up um the pinot so is it is it all of germany or moselle particularly you have an eye on i mean i always had a soft spot for the mosel right you know? but you'll take inspiration from anywhere if it makes yeah, sense absolutely right? yeah. if, it, if it could work in our region then that's what makes the most sense all right so i have a couple of wines in front of me maybe we'll taste the shapika towards the end i actually have the um the green label, Nathan K. It's a 2019. You listed on the label as a dry Riesling Finger Lakes. Mm -hmm. um, so let's just talk about that quickly. I opened it up, I don't know, half an hour ago. It filled up the room with aroma. Um, so let's let's talk about this wine. 2019 as a vintage year was good, bad, tough, um, easy. I love 2019. I mean, most people kind of gravitate towards the 20 because it was that bigger, riper year. But the 19 was great because it was like this first week of August, the temps just dropped and we had um, cool days and cold nights and virtually no disease pressure. So, uh, but with that said, you know, you're getting higher acid. So we were able to hang right. those grapes out for considerably longer than normal um to really let those flavors evolve and to help bring down the acid and uh i'm a big fan of hang time if you can pull it off and that was the year for it right so the nose is beautiful um do you remember some of the characteristics of the nose from this wine the 19 well as i mentioned earlier um kind of drawing inspiration from a cabinet that wine is typically harvested earlier, so it's going to be more of that um, citrus profile, you know, kind of green yes. apple. Yes. You know, it's green I don't apple and the right, right. I definitely feel that, and the people worry about, you know, you hear this a million times, Riesling being sweet. Um, it, it's got a, a, a great feel as far as the dryness. The mouth feel is great. Um, what um the acids are there but they're not too strong which i like um 
what um i hate to ask this question but i'm very curious these wines your dry rieslings what are ideal pairings with these wines oh geez wow i don't like answering that question you know i know i didn't you hear my hesitation answering it i just the reason i'm asking you and i understand what you're saying is i think people wrestle with like what do i eat with riesling um and, and i guess without backing you into a corner whatever makes sense to you right yeah, I mean, like I said, it's everyone's personal preference. I have my go-to pairings that I like. You know, Let I'm me hear. A, Fair enough. Yeah. I, I may ask you this question on our wine list, but just give me one for Riesling. One for Riesling. Well, I like spicy stuff, you know, so I'd, or, yep. so I'd put that way. I mean, I had some Riesling last week with a, it was a spicy pork and a udon noodle dish. You know? I think that's a good, I think that's a good pool. I think Gewurz, you know, some of the Austrian stuff goes well with that. Um, we'll leave it at that. Um, what's on the market right now? I'm looking at a 2019. If we were going to buy this wine, it's the 20 that's available. Um, probably. Yeah. I mean, we just switched over to the 20 maybe a month ago. So that's just starting to trickle out. Yeah. So people can look for that. Um, before I move off of this very cool labels, um, what was the idea for the label? Who does the labels? It's almost like Mondrian or Paul Clay. I forgot who, um, tell me how the label came about. Well, the original prototypes for labels I put together, um, came back i wanted something clean and classic but when i got the proofs they were just extremely boring so i decided <laughs> okay. to go in a radically different direction and to take a design that was just meant to be a border and make it the entire label um but the inspiration for that my father was a general contractor uh for years and his favorite style to work in was you know the arts and crafts style so i was always a big fan of that and i was always uh, I always enjoyed Frank Lloyd Wright's stained glass work. So that was kind of the inspiration. You know what? It has, it has that feel. It has a modern yet a classic feel, you know, which I think matches you. Cause I think you're kind of an old soul, you know, with a lot of ideas and innovation in you. So I think the label reflects the brand and you pretty well. It's really nice. Um, so you make wines of place. I mean, obviously, you know, you want to um, make wines that, you know, reflect the terroir. Um, you said this a couple of minutes ago. I think you're a cool climate wine guy. Is that fair to say? Uh, I would say so, yeah. And does the Finger Lakes fall into that? I mean, it's a cool climate wine region, right? Absolutely. For you, does that make it a great place to grow wines? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's the wines that I want to drink. I want to drink something with lower alcohol, higher acid, um, very versatile with food pairings, you know. Yeah, um, so you're where you should be. All right, Nathan, we got to take a quick break. We're talking to Nathan Kendall. Nathan is the proprietor of Nathan K. Hickory Hollow and Chapeka Wines. Um, when we come back, 
we're going to talk about his wineries and his wines and get into that a little. And then we're even going to taste uh, one of his sparklers, the Chapika. So you're listening to the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back. This episode is supported by HRN business members, the restaurants Popina and Gus's Chop House, rooted in being welcoming places for people to gather over great food and wine in their Brooklyn neighborhoods. Popina in the Columbia Street Waterfront District is a neighborhood restaurant that slings pasta, hot chicken, and champagne. And Gus's Chop House in Carroll Gardens takes inspiration from European chop houses and casual bistros. The restaurants support HRN's creative, educational reporting and storytelling that drive conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. All right, we're back. We're back with my guest, Nathan Kendall. Nathan Kendall is a Finger Lakes native, grew up around wine, is now making it, um, Walk me through this, Nathan. In 2011, we discussed quickly, you opened your own winery. And 2023, January, you're working or you have your hands or you own three wineries, Nathan K., Hickory Hollow, and Chapika. Is that accurate? Um, Sort of. So it's Technically, all produced in one winery, but three different brands. Okay, I guess I right. Um, but Nathan Kay's been around. Let's talk about Hickory Hollow first. These are the three brands that are made at Hickory Hollow, right? No, uh, the yeah. Is that, well, technically, Hickory t- Hollow is the tasting room. Okay. But you have a label, Hickory Hollow. Yep. I do. I, so tell me, tell me how and when Hickory Hollow came into your life. You know why? I mean, I guess you needed a tasting room, a facility. You know, because you were making wines. How and where before? So I was making my wines out of a small space, and um, my parents started uh, Hickory Hollow twenty years ago with a partner, and they, you know, like a lot of partnerships that worked until it didn't and they had gotten out of the business um and they had been out for a few years and i was on my own doing my own thing and the they had first refusal on the property so when their former partner decided he wanted out it was uh i had the time and it's like hey you know you want to take back your old brand rebrand it and you know this do dry what, what year was that nathan that was, when was 2015 that? and 2016 okay. was the first vintage i made the hickory hollow wines all right so just tell me before 16 hickory hollow was a winery right they were making wines your parents yeah. and their partners mm-hmm. what were they making the classic finger lake stuff rieslings and shards yeah, they were doing the classics, but the the reason that partnership didn't really shake out is their partner wanted to go more in the direction of sweet wines. Okay. All right. And that's and, and that's if you haven't been to the Finger Lakes, that's 
there's a lot of wineries who are doing that and they're doing it very successfully. Um, just making, right. making sweeter table wines. And that's not really anything my parents had interest in doing. Right. Um, so when the opportunity came up for that right of refusal for Hickory Hollow, you jumped on it, right? Did that seem like it could solve some problems for you or help you moving forward? Was well, that an important it, step? It was like everybody wins that way because that gives me a piece of direct-to-consumer with the Nathan K wines that I didn't have before that. And then right. it gave my parents the opportunity to, to start over and to build the brand that they always wanted. Right. So are they still involved? Absolutely, yep. Oh, so that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. So the, th the thing turns over, everyone's involved. When you said direct-to-consumer, did you mean the opportunity for the consumer to walk into the tasting room and taste? Uh, that and, you know, selling bottles to them directly because prior to that tasting room, most of my wine was going into wholesale and I was, you know, selling it out of the trunk of my car. Right. Were you at that point online doing any mailing list stuff? No, I'm very low tech. I mean, you saw me struggle. Are you doing any of that up. now or? Yeah. You're, you're better at that. Yeah, okay. I'm learning. Um, okay. Um, well, the good and the bad news is, the bad news is you're learning, but you should know it. The good news is it's not like you make 80,000 cases a year. And, you you know, your wines are very sought after and they're limited. So they're going to get out there and sold anyway. So that's, that's very good news. Um, the online stuff and all that is, you know, complimentary or, or good fill in and everything. Um, so each winery operates separately right i mean would you say each has its own persona i mean i think so do you agree absolutely all right so walk me through that you know if i said to you just tell me you know nathan k sort of what the persona and the goal is or the mission statement you know what you can do with hickory hollow i would think your parents have a little influence in that and then you started a more recent project chapica with pascaline just tell me what each one allows you to do um so basically the nathan k started up as you know more old world style wines, um, you know, mostly done in barrels, indigenous ferments, uh, you know, that sort of stuff and a focus on varieties. And with the Hickory Hollow brand, um, I have a lot of fun playing with uh, red grapes. That seems to be like more of the focus. Like Frankish? Yep. Blau Frankish, Separavi, Merlot, Merlots, uh, Cabernet Merlot blend, um, a really fun blend that's done with uh, hybrids and vinifera. So that kind of allows me to explore the red wines of the region. And then right. um, the Shapika, those are um, organic, old school hybrids. Right, which we talked about earlier, the yep. Catawba and all of that. Um and we'll get into each one a little more, but just curious, the Catawba right now, is Catawba all sparklers? Um, no, no, I would say, um, uh, 
most of it's probably done as still wines. Okay. Can, I'm thinking of who else does a sparkling Catawba, and I'm only uh, only one other winery pops into my mind at the moment. Um, up there or somewhere else? Uh, up here. All right. If it comes into your mind, um, let me know. The, the winery um, in particular? Yeah. Yeah. So there, doesn't there's, matter. There's a winery down the street, Lakewood, and they do a sparkling Catawba. And they even do it in cans with some pretty slick packaging. That's cool. And yours is a Catawba pet net, right? Yep. Well, actually, we switched yep. to traditional method in 2020. Okay. So the 21 Catawba that I'm looking at is a traditional method, not a pet net. Right. True. Which is why on the website, it doesn't say pet net. You cleared that up. Um, all right. So what goes into these wines are the grapes. And let's talk about that. Do you own any land right now? I don't. I mean, I own some land, but it's not planted at this time. Okay. Um, so you purchase grapes. You had mentioned you had a friend earlier. Um, does that fulfill your need or you have to go all over the place to get grapes to make what you want? That fulfills my need. I mean, right now I am at uh, max capacity for production. Right. Um, so this, your friend is able to come to you. You, you got specific earlier um, with growers that have sites um, that you could partner with. Um, so you answer part of the question, but how do you determine the sites or the, the, the grapes you're going to take from one, what sites? Obviously, you'd mentioned organic, so sustainability, organics, those type of practices are important. Yes. Yeah. And, and for a similar grape, do you work with a diversity of sites? Like for Riesling, will... Will there be three or four different sites going into a Riesling or you're able to make some site or one or two site specific wines? Um, usually just one or two sites because right. the, in my opinion, like uh, you really have to learn your sites and not every site behaves the same way with, you know, the same treatments. Like one particular site will be best expressed in stainless steel and the other one might be in barrels and it's kind of, finding what is the best expression for each site. And I'm quite happy with uh, where I'm at with working with these particular growers. So I don't really see the need. How involved are you with the growers? Are you on the ground with them or you trust them enough where, you know, they'll grow and uh, harvest the grapes? Oh, I trust them enough. But I mean, if, if, you know, they need help, I'm, I'm going to drop what I'm doing and be out there. Right. Um, so, the standards and practices you demand of them, you found with all the growers um, that you purchase grapes from, obviously, right? I mean, they're all, are they all organic or they're all no. sustainable? No, the only one organic is the uh, Shapika site. And that's because those uh, older varieties are better suited to the climate and require less inputs in the vineyard. Is for the other right. ones, uh, the other varieties, the more tender European varieties. Um, as far as I know, there isn't one certified organic vinifera farm in the Finger Lakes, just because <laughs> they, you know, they're 
they're not from here and they require a lot more attention. Right. So we're doing our best to farm farm better, you know, with the elimination of herbicides and whatnot. So that was my question. As time goes by, you start moving towards the things that are important to you um, as best as you can, you know, like you said, moving away from herbicides and all of that. Um, so can you control the process as much as you need to? Or again, you leave it, you know, once you contract with a farmer, you leave it to them. I mean, I, I leave it to them. And it's just all about kind of finding your people and the people like-minded individuals right. that you want to work with. Right. It becomes easy, you know, when you can find that. Is there enough of that up there as far as you're concerned? I mean, you said you're working at max capacity, so it sounds like you're in good shape. Yeah, I'm I'm totally fine. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, um, I, I just, for my max capacity, it's that I can carry out the, the bulk of the work by myself you know, without right. killing myself and then bringing on a little bit of seasonal help when I need it. And that's, I got enough on my plate. So when you, when I ask you and, you know, if I asked all these growers, the big general question, which is, you know, what are the biggest challenges growing grapes up there? Is it, is it that short climate window? I mean, how do you answer that? Um, it's not really the climate window. I mean, right now, uh, we have the risk of spring frost. We have the risk, risk of fall frost. Um, you know, if the vines don't harden off in the winter and it just gets real cold real quick, we can lose a lot of vines and buds that way. Uh, right. in more recent years, the biggest challenge we're seeing is, um, it's hotter than it used to be and it's wetter than it used to be, which, you know, when you put those right. two variables, so together, what, what effect does that have? So hotter and wetter, what does that mean? Earlier, yeah. later, more, less, more disease um, pressure. okay. Which means some kind of treatment or attention. Well, or, you know, in some even worse cases, you know, the loss of a lot of crop to rot. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, and everything you've told me is, is not exclusive, but because of the Finger Lakes, because the early frost, potentially the late frost, getting warmer, which is different, um, all the, uh, you know, extra rain and everything. Those are things that you have to deal with. So the challenges keep getting thrown to you, I guess, um, in this sense. I mean, certainly regions in the Rhone or Napa, they don't have to worry about wet. Um, sometimes they have to deal with heat. Um, so I guess those are the challenges that you have to deal with. Do you have aspirations? Can you, do you want to buy property, um, take over properties? Is that important to you or this model, you know, works well or a hybrid? That. I mean, what, what do you think about in the future? I mean, right now, uh, I purchased some acreage a few years ago. Um, it's just, I'm not quite ready to plant it yet. Right. And if I did, have you done anything experimenting on it or you uh, haven't planted it at all? You know, right. I feel like my needs are met at the moment. So I feel, uh, my best thing to do at the moment as a land steward is to not do anything with it. You know, because when I moved in here, I let 
things kind of go wild and I've been having a really fun time watching wildlife flourish here. Right. So you don't have that bug or that itch where I got to own my own property or, you know, I got to control this. I mean, that's not a strong itch that you have right now. Not at the moment. I've got some really good working relationships. And like I said, it's the, the best thing I can do for land preservation and conservation is to kind of let things go a little wild here. Yeah. Are you the kind of guy that you kind of lose what you want to do or even your vision if things actually get too big? I mean, do you worry about that? That's a fear of mine. Yeah, I'm a, I, I want it to be fun, you know, and right, right. now it's, uh, you know, I, I don't want to be one of these people with too much on my plate, not able to balance it, not able to do things to the best of my ability to lose sleep, to stress, like, I don't want to be that guy. So 10 years from now, if you're still doing this in a little more evolved way, You'll be happy? I mean, I'm just trying to get a little bit better. You know, that's about it. Yeah, well, you and I are talking about different things. You're talking about making better wine. I'm talking about maybe selling more wine, making a little more money. You know, the notoriety is in the sales and all of that. You know, that's where the temptation comes. Everybody loves your wines. They want more of it. But then it's conflicting because if you get too big or take your eye off the ball, maybe it's not the same thing. So I encourage you to follow your heart, and it sounds good. Um, we talked a little about the farming and all that. You know, while we're talking about all this, let's talk about, you know, cellar practices. Um, everyone always says great wines come from the field. And, you know, obviously you've had the opportunity to partner up with some good people. Um, but tell me, about your seller practices, your seller for seller philosophy. Um, let me just clarify again, or just ask again, you're making all the wines at Hickory hollow now. Uh, yep. Except for one, okay. one wine I do at the winery next door, just because that's, uh, they've got technology I don't have. And, and okay. Okay. Um, would you say what, What's the technology that you don't have and why does the wine that you're making there require it? You know, why does that one wine, just tell me a little about that. Um, because it was, uh, put it this way, this winery could do in two hours that would take me a week to do just because they have the scale, ah. they've got the bigger equipment, they've got the staff, they've got a bottle of wine in house. So it just makes life much easier for me. And plus being right next door, I can go in as often as I need to. So that plays back to my last question a little. Are the things that you mentioned, are those things down the road that if you gradually can acquire, um, will make life better or not necessarily? Like you could rent your own bottling line if you wanted to. I mean, do you need to have or own those things they have or you could continue to function doing it the way you do it? I'm going to continue to function the way I'm doing it. I brought in a, a slightly bigger press last year that I wasn't able to okay. to use just because I didn't get it in time. But um, th that'll make life a little bit easier. But I mean, if, if it isn't broke, why fix it? I agree. 
I agree. And I like that you stay true to that. All right. So let's talk about seller practice. Um, fair to say you're a low intervention guy. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about the Riesling. You're pressing, just walk me through the process quickly. Um, you're taking the grapes, um, out of the field, you're pressing them. And what are you doing, you know, as far as in the cellar? Nothing fancy. So I'll, I'll press the juice, uh, let it settle overnight, and then rack it off um, into the uh, neutral barrels. And some goes into right. stainless and usually right around 50%, half barrel, half stainless. And right. then uh, spontaneous ferment. Um, and then... They nothing. They just kind of hang out on the the lead or hang out until they're done fermenting, and then age them till you know the following summer, July, August, uh, on the lees. And then um, I do filter those wines. What do you go, go backwards for a second? I didn't mean to interrupt again. Leaving them on the lees. Tell everyone what the lees are and what that does. So when you look at a, a finished wine, it's normally you know pretty clear and transparent, but during the fermentation, it looks like uh, it's very cloudy, like orange juice or something. And that's right. the yeast in there uh, eating the sugar and converting it into alcohol and CO2. And after all the sugar has been consumed and it's dry, the, the yeast die and they settle to the bottom of the tank and they form, you know, a thick layer of kind of I don't, sludge is not a very appealing word, but kind of like, like a, thick, a white. Yeah, the creamy White, texture. powdery layer or something, yeah. And, um, you know, if you leave the wines in contact with them, you kind of create um, a little more mid-palate weight, kind of a creamy texture, uh, which I think kind of helps give the, the wines of our region a little bit of heft that they don't normally have. Right. So they just age on the leaves until the following summer. And then the filtering gets that sediment or lees out or clears up the wine, right? So I filter the wines, the white wines, because they don't go through full malolactic fermentation. And that's right. something you don't want to occur in the bottle. Um, whereas the reds, I don't filter because they go through the full mallow. Right. Um, so how do you filter the whites? Uh, just an old school plate and frame filter. Okay. Um, you don't find, do you? No. No, no. Um, I'm just curious. You use um, the wines ferment naturally. Do a lot of the wineries, do most of them, do some of them, do they do natural fermentation, you know, with indigenous yeast or a lot of people are adding yeast? I'm just curious where the region's at right now. Uh, you know, I really wouldn't know. I would say probably the younger generation are of definitely. winemakers are pushing the more spontaneous ferments. Um, and you think some of the olders, because you know I've been adding, you know, yeast possibly, right? I, I honestly couldn't say. I don't. <laughs> I'm not yeah, it doesn't matter. Either. I was just curious. I was just curious because I know, you know, your mindset would be, you know, to do uh, – spontaneous uh, fermentation stylistically 
Um, I mean, Shapika kind of stands out on his own. But stylistically, when you look at Hickory Hollow and the Nathan K wines, is the style really in the grape or is it also in the winemaking? Um, probably like, more like you're taking on, you know, like you said, you like the red grapes, you know, with the hickory hollow. So right there's a difference, but, and you have to make red different than wine, but are you applying, you know, totally different, you know, styles to make different wines or are you kind of set on that same path? Um, similar trajectory. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I figured. That's what I figured. Um, let's talk about Shapika for a second. Um, it's an interesting project. Um, it involves a friend of ours, Pascaline Lapeltier, who was certainly one of the great people in wine. Um, tell me the Shapika story, you know, how it is that you and Pascaline got together and make these wines and, you know, they're interesting wines. We talked about, you know, the grapes and how unique they are. They're not really unique, but they're unique in the sense that a lot of people don't make them. Just tell me the story of Shapika. So that was a fun, fun story. Um, I met her years ago. She was on a trip up here, uh, getting ready to open, reopen Rouge Tomat. And she was, you know, has a reputation for putting together some incredible wine lists. And yeah. we, we met and we were discussing wines and whatnot and we realized we shared very similar philosophies on what we thought wine could and should be and she was asking me where to find a you know uh hyper local wine a great variety you know that's made sense that was organic that was made without any additions whatsoever and what winery made that wine and i just kind of laughed and i said nobody I said, if you want that, then we're going to have to make it. And that's when we started doing the trials. And what year was that? How long ago? 2015, I believe. That's a while ago already. It's almost eight years. Yeah. Um, do you do you think her curiosity and inquiry to all of this comes from coming from the Loire? You know, that they do that kind of shit there, you know? Or it was just something she was looking or hoping towards the Finger Lakes would or could do? That would be a question for her. Okay. Yeah. Um, I will ask her that one day. So you have that initial conversation, and how does it materialize? So we bought that um, not-so-great bulk wine that needed the Okay. And All right, that was with her. Got it through a second ferment and said, hey, you know, this has got potential. We just need better grapes and better winemaking. So that was in 2016 that we were able to source our own grapes and start that up. And, right. um, you know, she comes up every year for harvest and she comes up for the disgorging and all that fun right. stuff. Right. Um, none of this stuff is blended. It's, it's, you know, the juice comes to you as it is, right? Yep. Well, I mean, the grapes do. We, we the grapes, the grapes I mean, yeah, now the grapes. Um, so the Shapika line, tell me the wines that are in the Shapika line. I'm staring at the uh, 2021 Catawba, which is no longer a pet net. It's traditional method. Yep. Tell me what else is in the lineup. We do the, um, the Catawba traditional method. 
we do the Concord Nouveau, and then we do the Delaware. That is still a pet map as of 21. Um, uh, and that one we do longer in the bottle on the leaves just to get a little right. more texture. Right. Um, so that's that's the lineup there. I think what I'm going to do, well, no, I'm going to wait a couple minutes. After we do the wine list, I'm going to crack open the Catawba. And I want to talk to you about that at the end of the show. All right. So, Nathan, you're doing a lot of great stuff up there. I'm not even sure we scratched the surface of everything, but um, continued luck. We don't let anybody leave the Grape Nation podcast without answering our wine list. We ask our guests the same five questions. So the questions I ask you are no different than anyone else I've asked. Um, Be spontaneous. Don't be long-winded. And I think our listeners are interested in what our guests are drinking. So the first question is, what are you drinking now? What's in your fridge? What do you like to experiment with? What's on your table? Things change with the seasons? Could be um, beer, could be Amaro. I don't know. I mean, but what's, I mean, are you always tasting your own wines? What are you drinking? Oh, uh, well, I, I hate to say it, but uh, I do drink wine, but I'm probably more of a beer guy. Okay craft you know i got a love for all of it but i typically prefer you know pilsners lagers lighter lower alcohol refreshing kind of similar to what i look for in a wine do you have a favor to anything made up there uh there's yeah so the uh some of my favorites up here would be genesee brewing out of rochester uh, which is a fairly large brewery but they just been around forever. Make some tasty beers. And um, most recently, Other Half Brewing set up a brewery up here. They started in Brooklyn, but now they've got a Finger Lakes outpost. And um, Oh, nice. Yeah, I, I do a little some little projects with them. So I usually have some of those in the fridge as well. Nice. Do you feel there's so much beer now, so much good beer? That sometimes it's frustrating not to get to it all. I mean, or you just kind of put everything in perspective. I put it all in perspective. And I mean, that's, yeah, that's the thing that the appeal to beer or my, why beer is more appealing is sometimes tasting wine feels a little too much like work and it's hard to shut your brain off. That's important. So it's nice to just crack, crack open a cold beer and not have to think about it. Yeah. Um, that's always a good option. I, I guess it was in the fall. I was up at the Peripheral Wine Festival. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there were some great, pre- and I stumbled, not stumbled. I mean, I knew it was there. I made my way to it. This Suarez family brewery right outside is making some incredible pilsners. I don't know if you ever had it or not, but it's it's good stuff. Um, I'll send you a note on it. All right. Good one on the first question, beer. Second question is a revisit to something we discussed. Let's just tighten it up a little. Favorite wine and food pairing? Are we going to go back to Riesling and spicy food? Um, That could be up there, but I'm also a sucker for Cabernet Franc and venison. That sounds like a perfect pairing. Um, So venison is more of a gamey meat. Cabernet Franc, what has some great aromatics and great flavor. Why does that work? Well, I mean, you get the gaminess of the, uh, of the venison, then you get, you know, the somewhat 
the bright red fruit, the earthy undertones, a little bit of a green tinge to it. They just seem to work real well together. Yeah. I, you know what? I've done over 250 interviews. I don't think anyone has thrown up Cab Franc and venison. First time I don't for mean everything. Up, throw. Yeah, no, that's a good one. That's why. And people will listen and go, you know what? Just on sound alone, that sounds good. Got to try it for real. All right. Third question. And maybe this limits, not limits you, but you're probably going to pick places up there. I asked my guests favorite wine restaurants and or bar. And I ask you to throw out a few places. And I always disclaim it by saying it's not a list of top places. If for some reason you forgot a friend, you know, you weren't being exclusive on purpose. But are there any places that you know that have the great wine list, great people, good knowledge, good vibe? I mean, are there places like that that you frequent up there? Um, um, you know, let's disclaim that if you went to Chambers in Manhattan, that would check the box. So I can't say I can't say Chambers. <laughs> no, we're going to say Chambers. Yeah, okay. But give me others like that. Oh, let's see. Um, kind of, so like up here, there is Kindred Fair up in Geneva, which is kind of a industry hangout. Okay. Um, great food. Great, great wine. food and wine. Yep. Right. Then you have the Lake House, which is fairly new up in Canandaigua. And same thing. Great food. Great wine. Um, salt of the earth in is Union it? Springs. That's uh, at the north end of Cayuga Lake. Same thing. Um, and then you know, if you're not feeling like fine dining, head down to Watkins Glen and go to Maria's Bar and Tavern. It's cash only, but they have cold beer and the best chicken wings. There you go. Everybody needs one of those places. Yeah. Who's the guy up there that is making wine and is also a chef? Um, that would have to be Christopher Bates. What's his, does he have a place? He does. Or it's just a winery? He, he does. I, that one kind of slipped my mind, but he's got a handful of restaurants up here and say, okay, good so food, good wine. The Bates places are good. Oh yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. All right. So that's a good one. You gave me a lot of good ones there. Um, if people ever get up there, they'll have a head start. Um, fourth question the question is favorite all-time wine. Now, let me clarify that for you a little. When I first did the show, I asked people their favorite all-time wine because I was curious about their rarest, most expensive wine you know, they ever drank. Don't care about that anymore. Mm -hmm. What the question has morphed into is, what's that wine during your life in wine that was that awakening wine was a gateway wine was a memorable wine was an important wine it could be one or two can you pin it back to you know a time when you tasted something or were exposed to something that still today you know is memorable for having the influence uh, uh two wines come to mind go when i was a bit younger i had a late harvest riesling from herman weimer that was from the 80s, and that was kind of like one of my aha moments. Right. And then most recently, when I started distributing in New York City, my distributor, uh, Avant-Garde, he introduced me to the champagnes of Emmanuel Brochet. 
good ones. And that's just kind of been what I've been chasing stylistically in sparkling wine. So I'm sure you've had other sparklers in champagne, but Brochet really stands out to you. Yeah. That's a good call. All right. I didn't mention this, but I post these answers on our social media so that we could expose them and give people access. Um, so in the coming week, we'll be doing some posting. Last question. And I think you may be able to handle this pretty well. I ask my guests, best wine around 15, 20, 22 bucks. Give me a red. Give me a white. Um, you can give me a region. Like you could say Muscadet makes really good value wines, you know, for whites. Can you think of something um, that checks those boxes? I, I think Finger Lakes may be able to accommodate some of that. Do you think so? I would definitely say Finger Lakes. Clearly, I'm biased, but I mean, we... No, I, no, no. I'm happy to go there. Are there are there Rieslings, Shards for 18 20 22 bucks? Absolutely. Now, okay. So I'm going to say Finger Lake Whites. I'm going to say Riesling Shard. Now, what about Red? Red sometimes becomes harder for people to answer, and sometimes it's more expensive. How would you answer Reds in that price category? Uh, I think that is a that is a tricky one to answer. Tougher, right? Yeah, because I mean, I think Finger Lake can provide great value, but I also know what fruit costs, and I don't think we can really. It, it'd be tough to come come into that price point, it'd be, especially with Cabernet Franc. Definitely not with Pinot. Okay. Yeah. Um, so back against the wall, if you have to think about good value reds from anywhere in the world, does anything come to mind? Ah, good value. Ooh, I mean, I like Loire Valley Cabernet Franc, but I don't know if it's getting that price, not in that price point. There may be. Let's leave it at that. I'll do a little research. Okay. You know, a lot of people are starting to move towards like Portugal is making some great, you know, reasonable red wines and all that. All right. Good job on that, Nathan. Thank you for answering those questions. Like I said, I'm going to post that. Um, as always, we wrap up the show with a segment called the Weekly Wine Sip. And certainly if I have a winemaker on as a guest, um, I'm going to at least make it my effort to taste their wines and talk about it with them. And you were gracious enough to get a couple of bottles in front of me. We talked about the 2019 Nathan K. Dry Riesling. Um, I am going to take this opener. Oh, Jesus. I just got hit hard on the Catawba. All right, I just opened the Catawba, and Ooh. it spritzed pretty good. And as... I opened it, there was an incredible uh, aromatics coming out. So it's got some nice bubble. It's got some nice small bubbles. Um, it's kind of a palish yellow. Um, tell me a little about this, the 2021 Chapika Catawba. So the Catawba is um, it's actually a pinkish purple grape. Um, right. But we do very minimal if any skin contact and try to press it off uh, so as to not extract, you know, any tannins or anything. Um, right. And that's done in stainless steel. And as I mentioned, we switched over to traditional method and that's just, um, I hate making pet mat, but uh, 
it was just a little frustrating to try to get the pressure dialed in every single year with a pet nap. So we shifted to traditional method in 2021. So that was actually back sweetened um, with seedless organic table grapes. Um, so when you say traditional method, compared to pet nat, you're, you're, um, a pet nat the, is a one fermented one time and it's fermented. Very, one, I want to make sure fermenting was this. So you ferment twice with this, the yep. second fermentation, you just said you add that, uh, mix of, uh, so that was, what'd you say? It was some table grapes. Yep. It was seedless organic table grapes grown in the same site as the Catawba. So we fermented it dry added it back an approximate amount of that juice to target the pressure that we wanted. And then it was bottled up and from, and then the second ferment was in bottle. Right. Like champagne. Yep. So it's got in the glass, a light golden hue in the bottle. It's a little darker. I've seen the grape before and you're right. It's like one of these light pinkish grapes and none of that color is reflected, you know, in the juice because you keep it off the skins, not on the skins much, like you said, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. And a lot of that color also uh, comes out. So when the wines are riddled and disgorged, a lot of the color falls out with the leaves. So talk to me about the nose a little. When I put my nose to the glass, it had a grapiness to it. And grapiness could be a negative word. Um, this is kind of a good grapiness because it's not strong. And then it sort of dissipates a little, you know, it, it dries out a little. Um, how would you describe the nose? So the Catawba is very um, floral, perfumed, a little spicy, musky, uh, very distinct aromas. Like I, I'd almost put it in the category of like Gewurz white, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. Um, so it does have that floral characteristic. What amazes me is the floral a lot of time is in the nose. This stuff's sitting in my mouth and everything you described is exploding in my mouth. That whole floral, you know, all those descriptors carry through to the palate, which is amazing to me. It's very interesting, you know, very cool. Would, would you agree? Absolutely, yes. It's very pungent, if I can say that. Pungent in a good way. I'm not sure yeah. pungent's the right word. I think it's very present. present. You know, present like it's you know, you, you know it's there and it carries through all the other stuff and nothing is too strong. Like no one characteristic is too strong. It's amazing. Um, what's the alcohol level on this? Uh, 10%. And I don't pick up a ton of acidity. Am I right there? Um, 2021. The uh, 2021 didn't have the highest acids, but yeah, I mean, I uh, listen, I, I like acid in my wines to some extent, you, you know, the not lack of it, but the fact that they're not strong. I mean, I, I love this, you, you know, I love this wine. The grape to me is very interesting. Um, all right, I have to ask you this question. <laughs> You're gonna hate me and never talk to me after this. What would be fun to eat with this? This is a really, does this go back to Asian food, spicy? Oh, it would absolutely work there for sure. It would complement, yeah, really well. This is a pretty special wine. I mean, I think the Catawba grape, 
I haven't drank much of it. It's very happening. I mean, it's, I hesitate to use this word, but it's very delicious. You know, everything is working with this wine. The mouthfeel is great. You know, the bubbles are great. They're not these big bubbles. They're not, you know, they're present. The aromatics and the palate are unbelievable. The feel in the mouth. I mean, it lingers on. Kudos to you on this. Thank you. What's the approximate? What's the approximate retail on this? Oh, uh, I believe thirty dollars. It's a it's a great it's a great wine for that price. Whether it's at a dinner or celebratory, whatever, because it it pops when you open it and it fizzes, so it's pretty good. So that's that's Nathan's twenty twenty one Catawba uh, traditional method. Um, thank you for letting me taste that, Nathan. It was delicious. All right, we got to wrap up. Do we cover everything? Do we miss anything? We got everything. I think we got it all. All right. All right. Let me do a quick wrap up and then I want to get some info from you. So if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening or event, hit me up at Sam at the That's Sam at the Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your pods. Leave a review if you like the podcast and subscribe. By subscribing, the podcast will be available to you right away without you going out searching for it. Follow us at Instagram at SBenRuby on Twitter at BenRuby. I know that can be confusing. So you can reach us on both with the hashtag The Grape Nation. Um, on Facebook, we are at The Grape Nation. Um, as I mentioned, we will post Nathan's wine lists some cool and interesting recos there and the weekly wine sip um, a worthy wine to seek out um, on our social media sites nathan um if we want to know more about your wines or we want to purchase them what do we do you can find them online at the website with a secure shopping cart we ship to 30 what's the website um, you can do nkendallwines.com or Shapika Wine. Okay. Kendall is K-E-N-D-A-L-L. Shapika is C-H-E-P-I-K-E Wines. If you Google them, it'll take you to that. So you could do commerce on those sites based on what you have available. Um, you have it in restaurants, I'm sure, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know how much Psalms love Riesling, right? They do. It's like they're... It's their thing, you know, so it's, they're going to have your stuff. Um, and if we want to find you and the wines, do you have any presence on social media? You sort of portrayed yourself as a bit of a Luddite early on. But... Um, I'm on Instagram. Yep, absolutely. Okay, what's the handle? It's N Kendall Wine. Okay, um, N Kendall Wine on Instagram, and that's where most of your presence is? Yep, that's where I hang out. Okay. Sounds good. All right. I want to thank our guest, Nathan Kendall. As you can see, Nathan has a lot going on there. Um, a few things. Um, I hope we've enlightened you to what the Finger Lakes can do, what people are doing there, and how important a wine region it is. Um, I hope we've enlightened you about, you know, Nathan's wines and the care that he puts towards them. Um, so Nathan, thank you for, uh, talking about that. As always, I want to thank our engineer Armin and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation.
The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.